Welcome to Podcasts for Social Entrepreneurs, the podcast that aims to give you an insight into the practice of social enterprise today by interviewing social entrepreneurs and the experts who support them. My name is Digby Chaxfield and I've worked with social entrepreneurs for the last 15 years as a board member, as an advisor, as a learning facilitator and as a social entrepreneur myself. In this episode we're joined by Nick Temple, Chief Executive Officer of Social Investment Business and he gives us an insight into social investment as a way of helping to start and grow social enterprises and how his company have been doing that all across the UK. Our in-depth interview is with Rebecca White, Chief Executive of Your Own Place CIC, based in Norwich in the UK. I interviewed Nick Temple on the phone, so the sound quality is a little crackly at times, um, and you can hear a phone going off in the background. But you should be able to get the gist of what Nick is saying. I've known Nick Temple for nine years now. I first met him at the School for Social Entrepreneurs. Nick has also been the Deputy Chief Executive at Social Enterprise UK. He sits on the board of the Social Value UK, the UK National Advisory Board for Impact Investing, Charity Bank Social Sector Advisory Panel, Big Issue Invests Investment Committee and the Diversity Forum for Social Investment. So it was a real coup to get Nick to come on the pod. Yeah, so um, fire away, Nick. What is a key issue for social entrepreneurs at the moment? So I think a key issue for social entrepreneurs at the moment is the type of money and support they need. That hasn't changed um, and been that way for a while. And that's, you know, saying they need the right money is, is sort of a truism, really. Like, that's the same for any business that might be seeking to sustain itself or to grow. So yeah. I think from... From our perspective at a social investment business, that's about kind of what's the, the right money at the right time on the right terms. And, you know, there's been a great growth in the UK in terms of different grants and different support programs and different types of social investment. But um, it still feels like we haven't quite got all of that cracked. And um, one thing we're trying to do here is to really test out some some ideas that kind of fit into that mix of things and try and work out what will work best for different types of social entrepreneur. I mean, that's really interesting. Could, could you give me an example? Because I, I know from my experience, social entrepreneurs who are just starting up could do with a little bit of support, but often it's quite challenging to get a lower level of investment easily from somebody, whereas the bigger spin-out types of people... Uh, you can treat them more like traditional businesses. Um, how do you how do you guys approach that? Yeah, so I mean, a couple of things we're trying out. One is um, we're looking at, at repayable grants that might be tied to performance a bit more. So, you know, could you give someone some money that is quite flexible in the way it works, that kind of invests in the core of the organisation, but that if that proves to go well and proves to be successful that actually they pay that back in a kind of patient and and and, and flexible way um, so that's one area which is kind of you know between this sort of gray area really between grants and and um, pure investment where we think there's probably some work to do I mean it's connected really like obviously there's a there's something that you'll be aware of that the school for social entrepreneurs have been developing which is around match trading which is a a similar, not not so much about the finance, more about the trading, but it's kind of trying to move people from pure grants to, to really embed that kind of culture of trading. And I think what's the finance that accompanies that journey and how do we incentivize people in the right way so the risk isn't always with the organization that's taking the money, but actually is a bit more equally shared between organizations like mine and the small charity or social enterprise we might be investing the money in. So that's one one type of thing. I think the other, as you said, Digby, is, is how do we use how do we use technology and um, better systems and you know appropriate risk to, to do things in smaller amounts and more quickly. You know, so how do you do a quick ten thousand, twenty thousand pound loan yeah. to an organization without 
tying yourself in knots and spending a huge amount of money on it. Yes. And I think that's something we're interested in too. Uh, looking at whether what's possible and learning from others in different fields. Do you see this as moving away from traditional local authority grant charitable trusts or even the social uh, impact bond model? Um, because you're you're talking sounds very similar to private sector finance, but obviously with conditions that take into account for social objectives. Um, do you see that as a move away from uh, the old model? Well, I think that certainly the move from local authority grants and charitable trusts has already been happening, right? So, yeah. you know, in many areas of the country, those grants just don't exist anymore. And, you know, in some senses, organisations have been compelled to be more commercial in their thinking and both in where their money comes from and in what money they might seek to get. I mean, I think in terms of broader social investment, there's a lot happening already. You know, so social impact bonds are one tool, but often only for a particular subset of public services and and bigger organisations. But, you know, there's crowdfunding platforms, there's, you know, patient and flexible loans, there's kind of more investment that's working more like venture capital does, um, and so on and so on. So there's a lot going on. I mean, I think what we're trying to do, when we started in 2002, we were the only organization virtually doing social investment. Yeah. And obviously now, more than 15 years, 16 years later, it's a much fuller landscape. And so you have to be really sensible and really think through how how do you add value and what are you adding and what are the bits that are missing really or still yeah. not working. And I think that's where the earliest stages of trying to work that out. But for me, there's still stuff to solve and there's still stuff to improve on. And it's primarily about really understanding and coming from the, the social entrepreneur's perspective yes. and not coming from a kind of, oh, I've got lots of great ideas from my time in financial services perspective <laughs> that I'd like to yeah. impose on the social sector. And that's what we're trying to do here is really get the customer view, the social entrepreneurs view right at the heart of our design and our thinking and our delivery. Um, that's really, really interesting. And I'm sure that people listening to this podcast will benefit from the, the nuances that you've helped sort of pick out there. Could you, do you have one example, um, perhaps from a social entrepreneur's perspective of where um, a, a type of investment that you're particularly excited about has worked? I, c I can't think of one, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you've got one. <laughs> you've got thousands tucked away there. We've got, yeah, we've done, we, I mean, we've, we've invested or supported into more than 2,000 organizations. So, you know, where, where would you like me to start? Um, just, just give me an example um, of one specific social <laughs> enterprise. That would be. I mean, here's, here's, here's one example, which I think is a really interesting one. Um, you know, we we invested in an organisation called Trinity Winchester. Ooh. And again, interesting because I think Winchester to many people is, you know, it's a very nice area to live. It's quite a rich part of Hampshire in the southeast. You know, not an instinctive place where you would go necessarily with social investment. Yeah. Um, and Trinity Winchester are a homeless charity, and an opportunity came up there to, to buy a building and create a much more effective building for them to do their work in, uh, both a night shelter and other aspects, but also to build better offices for themselves and to earn income through sharing those offices with other organizations from the, the charitable and social world. So they did that you know, quite a while ago now, maybe eight, nine years. And, you know, it hasn't been easy. Obviously, the kind of the commissioning environment locally and lots of other things have changed. Um, but actually, they're a more robust organization. They're more resilient. And they're now looking at, because they've been through that investment journey and the board and the team are more used to what that looks like, they're actually now looking at and considering a, an additional kind of uh, investment opportunity into providing homes for, for people fleeing from domestic violence and and needing emergency shelter as well. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's kind of these interesting journeys where that kind of initial risk and lots of, you know, from our side, we've needed to be at times flexible and patient and work with them on that journey. But ultimately, it's enabling them to do better services and have more impact for the people who need it. Um, and and as you all know, I'm sure, you know, frankly, homelessness is a sort of problem that 
as a country I feel like we should be ashamed of. So yeah, it doesn't anything, need to exist, does it? Anything, you know, and I, I, what struck me, I suppose, was I, you know, walking to the train to Winchester, I walked past a huge number of people sleeping out on the street and, it, you know, to be a small part, because obviously they do all the hard work, but to be a small part of giving them the means and resources to be able to deliver more services with better quality to greater numbers of people is is kind of what it's about. Um, and that's just one example where the right match of investor and investee can really deliver results. Yeah. Oh, that's superb. No Nick, worries. Really appreciate your time, Nick, and thanks ever so much, and look forward to uh, speaking again soon. Cheers, David. Take care. Thanks. Bye. 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 That was the wonderful Nick Temple, and here's a bit more about his company. Social investment business helps charities and social enterprises get the money and support they need to improve people's lives. Since 2002, social investment business has provided over £400 million worth of loans and grants to charities and social enterprises and supported 700 organisations to become more resilient through business support programmes. You can find more information about social investment business on Twitter at TheSocialInvest and more information about Nick Temple at Nick Temple One. On with the pod. Uh, I'm sitting with Rebecca White, founder of Your Own Place CIC. Rebecca started Your Own Place in 2013 and has just celebrated her fifth birthday. Your Own Place CIC is aiming to eradicate uh, youth homelessness and Rebecca's passion for supporting young people to be empowered to manage their lives in a positive way interestingly draws on the idea that you build a network of support to do that. She's going to talk more about that, we're going to learn a bit about Rebecca herself um, and some of her thoughts around social enterprise. Rebecca is from a secondary teaching background. She's also been an ex-local authority commissioner. So in social entrepreneur terms, that makes her a poacher turned gamekeeper. And I first met Rebecca when I was working at the School for Social Entrepreneurs and I could immediately see those wonderful qualities that social entrepreneurs have. And I think Rebecca has the qualities that you need to be running social enterprise in 2018. So such as tenacity and determination, but also a level of professionalism that enables her to engage with all sorts of people and get them on board to, to her mission. Well, welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. It's lovely to, to be with you in your training flat in Norwich. Um, and so could you please just tell us a little bit more about what your own place does and who's in your team and how it works and all of that stuff? Absolutely. Thank you for, for asking me to talk a bit about it. So Your Own Place, as you say, is now five years old and we have grown to a team of five with almost a hundred volunteer mentors as well, which we definitely see as part of our team. Arguably our young people as our equals are also part of our team. But yes, we have five members of staff doing a range of things, all with one aim, which is to support young people and prevent them from becoming the future homeless population. Brilliant. So your social impact so far, I mean, I think, you know, it's incredibly impressive being able to start a social enterprise with very little money or support and keep it going for five years to the state where you've got a training flat and all sorts. And I noticed on your website, you say that in 2015, you'd support about 200 young people. Mm -hmm. and that's before some of your initiatives um, kicked in, like the mentoring you get corporates to do. So what, what's your social impact looking like at the moment in 2018? So we're now working with probably over, well not probably, definitely over a couple of hundred young people a year. Um, as a start-up enterprise, no two years are the same, so there's no comparing like with like, unfortunately. And I'm proud to say we've measured our outcomes from day one. There isn't an intervention or a session with a young person since 2013 that hasn't been recorded and that hasn't been measured. And what that gives us are some short-term outcomes around financial literacy, around better money outcomes, about better knowledge, skills and confidence around debt, around housing options, around all the practical skills they need to make their way into independence. But it's not enough, and I think five years is a massive milestone for overhauling our impact measurements and looking more cleverly at what we do 
around uh, cost savings, so around the social return on investment bit. When we know an eviction costs a landlord in the region of £10,000, we want to look at the difference we make against that because I think that's where the numbers stack up in terms of it being worth investing in us if you have an interest in preventing people from being homeless. Um, but we also want to look at our longitudinal outcomes, so really boring long words for really looking what our impact is down the line. And again, every young person that's come into our service is asked, are you happy if we follow up with you in two years' time? Um, and even more, are, we happy? are you happy if we follow up with your landlord in two years' time? So those are great ambitions so that we really can see, well, have we made a difference? Have we kept that young person in their home? Have we prevented that young person from losing that home? Um, needless to say, massive challenges, because by definition, we're working with young people in transition. There are 25 social landlords they may move in with, let alone move back with parents, in with boyfriends, into the private rented sector. So tracking them is really hard. So it remains an ambition, but it remains, I think, a fundamental bit of measuring our impact and therefore really being clear about the difference we make. Have you managed to be in touch with anybody you helped when you very first started? And, Absolutely, and... yeah. Some young people stay with us because they like us and people think that's a great outcome. Um, and of course being liked is a great outcome, but actually the best outcome is that we don't see anybody we worked with because the best outcome is they don't need us. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's a tricky one. But yes, we've found some quite clever ways of catching up with young people who have left our services and going back to them and asking, in hindsight, asking them to reflect and saying, so what do you think the difference, now that you're in your own place, what do you think the difference is that being with us made? Um, and we don't overstate that because I'm cautious not to overclaim but mm. certainly of the young people the small numbers that have come back to us and they have it's been overwhelmingly positive about the difference we made that they've, they've told us you know if I hadn't attended your courses if I hadn't learned about budgeting and paying the bills and setting it all up online I would definitely have lost my flat I would definitely be in arrears I would definitely be in debt so really positive to hear those differences we make yes that's that's wonderful um to hear that, and you're clearly putting in some structures again that uh, that mean you don't lose those uh, those little examples, case studies. Um, so I, I want to hear more about that, but for now, I'd quite like to take you back to how it all started, and if you could tell us a little bit about your background, you know where you grew up, you know why did you get into teaching, why local authorities. Um, so yeah, I'm a I'm Norfolk born and bred, so grew up in South Norfolk, and I think with what I'm doing now, it's what's one of my reflections that you know I grew up in when in a, a world of unknown unknowns. I only knew the world I grew up in, and it was pretty comfortable and pretty privileged and pretty nice and and all very good. And like a lot of eighteen year olds, I then skedaddled, um, went up north to university, and started my career in London. Um, as a teacher, as a secondary school teacher, it was sort of a bit of a rite of passage, really. Lots of teachers in the family. Um, what else am I going to do? What did you teach? Do? I taught modern foreign languages, so oh. I taught Russian and German, wow. uh, which is a bit random. But, uh, of course, the real proper answer to that question is I taught children. Um, and it was that that's, you know, I guess, set me on this trajectory. Um, and, and sadly, I guess, like a lot of teachers... Um, I walked away from teaching because I didn't feel it was an environment in which I could be free to do the best I wanted to do for the young people. Um, so. I connect with that. So mm. when I was a teacher, for probably only for four years, so okay. not very long. For it's longer than me. Uh, very similar reasons. I loved working with the young people, loved mm. working with children, you know, hated the, the context, the yeah. staff, the pressures that were coming in. Yeah. Uh, back then in uh, in terms of what was expected yeah. and uh, behaviours mm. of staff. You couldn't just inspire young people. Yeah. I found that really restrictive and I think also my personality type just didn't particularly like being stuck in a classroom until a bell rang and uh, then allowed <laughs> to leave. So um, yeah, I did three years. It was the best thing I could have ever done. It's fantastic qualification. If you can stand in front of 30, 15-year-olds in South London, you can probably do pretty much most things. So a wonderful experience. And looking back, 20 years almost exactly, I left in July, as you do, without a job to go to in the heady noughties. Um, you know, just, hey, I was in London, I'd get a job, wouldn't I? 
and found myself working what at the time was known as RPS Rainer, uh, a big national charity working with young people who were being moved out of homelessness into supported accommodation across South London. Um, and I, I guess a whole world opened up to me. And I'd always been interested in, you know, the cheeky monkeys in my class. I'd always been interested in those that just didn't get airtime, really, um, for whom mainstream comprehensive education probably left them behind. And, of course, it was quite a lot of those same young people that I then found myself working with once I worked in supported accommodation. And as somebody from a, you know, pretty privileged South Norfolk background, I came across people who'd had experiences that I simply didn't know existed. We worked with a lot of refugees, we worked with a lot of young people who'd been in the care system, who frankly had horrific starts in life um, to end up in our services. So I worked there for three years and it was fantastic and it opened my eyes really to, to homelessness but actually supported accommodation which is technical homelessness but how we just weren't supporting young people adequately who were in transition to adult life. Was there a, a significant moment that you experienced that you thought this is, this is wrong, this is not working, I, I have to do something about this? Was it that stage or did that reflection, did that come later or did that not happen at all and you just... I think there were several. Um, I don't think there were moments, I think there were probably people mm. and I think there were young people who I met who were smart and resilient and confident but for whom life had dealt them an incredibly unfair card and, and there is no better phrase despite the fact I'm not religious, than there but for the grace of God go I. And that's what just started to dawn on me. I was born into my family by chance, and they were born into their situation by chance, and therefore no blame can be apportioned either way, really. Um, and I think that's when my heart just started to go out to them and just think, we've just created a series of systems that really, really don't work for quite a lot of people. And for young people, the consequences are phenomenal because we all only get one chance and we just seem to have stopped caring and it, it struck me that there were some quite simple things that could be done practically to enable them to have better transitions and better chances into adult life mm. so I went from there um, a, a project came up with the same organization to work across the secure estate to work across youth offending institutions across the country um, based out of Greenwich youth offending team um, and that was a fantastic experience about improving resettlement, essentially, for children. It's always important to call them children if they're under 18, because that's what they are. Coming out of prison and going back into their home communities and how we could join that up better. So again, they'd have better chances when they came out. 60% of people reoffending within two years is not great. It's not no. great for them. It's not great for taxpayers. So that was a great project. So what? So I'm quite interested. So you... I, I do want to hear how you got into local authority as well, mm -hmm. but just picking up on that point of, of looking at homelessness, looking at the statutory, you're working in the statutory system as it is. Mm -hmm. What, why, why didn't you just stay in that system? You know, what, what is it that made you ultimately set up a social enterprise which doesn't quite click into system, the systemic approach that we have? I think that's really hard and I, I wrestle with it all the time because I have lots of operational experience in my professional career and I have lots of strategic experience. And I remember my first job in Norfolk, it had strategy in the job title. And I honestly remember Googling it loads, <laughs> just going, what do they actually want from me? What do they mean they want me to be strategic? And then the penny dropped. I think I'm naturally quite strategic. So I think when I was 25, I'm working one-to-one -one with a young person queuing outside Catford Job Centre, actually, I was reflecting on that in a strategic way and thinking, I can help this young person by teaching a man to fish, mm. but actually, I want to change it systemically. Mm. And I'm coming full circle that I'm only me and I can't change it systemically, but actually I can by having a voice, by being evidence-based, by reporting and sharing our impact, we can have individual impacts on humans' lives now, and if I do nothing else, that's enough. But also, if I have a voice, then I have a responsibility to use it and change how things are done systemically too. So I really enjoy 
thinking strategically, but working operationally. Yes, it's the the action bit of what you're describing that can be missing in, in some more strategic roles in local authorities. So how did you end up being a commissioner then? So, so there's one more step after working in prisons, which was um, home office contracts on behalf of Southwark Youth Offending Team, gangs projects, knife crime projects um, in Southwark and Lambeth. So that was really moving more in criminal justice circles. Mm. So that was my first management role. So I was managing the staff that were delivering those services. So started to give me a sense of how funding worked and, and all those deathly requirements. Um, and then for personal reasons, I came back to Norfolk. And suddenly the world changes because the world was a bit your oyster in London. Um, you know, so many jobs to choose from. And to be honest, there were fewer to choose from. And if I was coming back to Norfolk to start my life there, well, then I needed a job. So I looked around um, and a job came up within what was then known as the Supporting People team, sitting within Adult Social Services. And the, that the original services I'd worked for in supported housing had been funded through the Supporting People funding stream, so I knew that. And they wanted a commissioner around young people's services, so I figured I knew about young people, um, and I knew about the housing and homeless services that they would benefit from. So commissioning felt like that strategic step away from operations to put some of that operational knowledge into yeah. a useful strategic context. And did... Uh, and did that work? I mean, it's an influential position being a commissioner. Um, you have a bit of power. Yeah, you, you do. You have a bit of money. You, you do if the supporting people budget wasn't cut overnight when I got my job in 2010 with a change oh. of government. So the administrative bit of the grant was lost, which is effectively the officers to run the projects. Um, so I moved into children's social services um, because, you know, I'm pleased to say they wanted to keep me somewhere. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right, you do have power, and I think what was pleasing was that I was somebody with the ability to wield some of that power, but who also understood the broader context, because what I discovered is lots of commissioners haven't actually worked mm. in those arenas, they're, they're commissioning services that they don't really understand. Sometimes they're there by accident rather yeah. than by design, aren't they? I thought commissioning was a thing that you probably did a yeah, qualification yeah. for, or at least a training course for, only to discover... It's not. Um, so, yeah, I, I was pleased to get behind the scenes, I guess, and feel that I could have some impact on some decent outcomes-based commissioning. So that puts you in, in that place. So what led you to the social enterprise? I mean, from there. What yes. do you, and also, what, did you, what, <laughs> what did you learn from that? I mean, what, what, was there anything that... I think it continued to distill in my mind this operational strategic tension that I was feeling. Yeah. So I'd done X number of years operationally and then X number of years strategically, commissionally, that's a word. Um, and I still felt as frustrated that we were still not preparing young people mm. for real independence, to really live successful adult lives, those most vulnerable young people. So I was just really continuing to... I guess, reflect on that frustration of do I want to affect change individually or do I want to affect change systemically, really. But ultimately just, I'm not making a bleeding difference sitting yeah. here in the county council. I'm just not getting up in the morning with enough motivation to change the world. Um, and then I think it's serendipity, isn't it, really? You forget quite how these things come about. And I had a nugget of an idea. Pause the pod, pause the pod. Hope you're enjoying the pod so far. I'm having a brief interlude to thank the legacy of the Eastern Enterprise Hub for sponsoring the podcast, our first sponsors, and offer the opportunity for anybody else who wants to get involved in sponsoring more interviews like this to get in touch at Podcasts for Sock Ent on Twitter. Back to the pod, back to the pod. Um, and then an email dropped into my inbox talked about some Lloyd's programme at the <laughs> School for Social Entrepreneurs in Ipswich. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and there we go. Do you, do you, looking back on it, was that, I, that nugget of an idea sort of just quietly there in the background for some time? It had been there for some time, yeah. I think probably for longer than I care to admit. But it's certainly been rumbling away. I... I knew I wanted to deliver something that gave 
the young people I was talking about more support, I didn't know I was going to do that mm. as a separate entity, as a social enterprise. You know, I was going to do that in my commissioning role. I was going to do that in my free time. I was going to, I was going to do something. I didn't know quite what or how. Did you, and so what did you know about social enterprise? I mean, you, you obviously saw the, the Lloyd School for Social Entrepreneurs, mm. Lloyd's email. Mm. Did you know much more about social enterprise? Absolutely did you, nothing. Did you know it was a thing? Nope, absolutely. Wow. I think I Googled it. Yeah. Um, I think the co-op came up. Yes. Um, and that's about as far as it went. Wow. Yeah, I really didn't know anything at all. So it was a whole Gosh. Pandora's box that suddenly got opened. And when you started meeting social entrepreneurs, mm. did any of those, did you connect with any of those? Did you think, I want to be a bit like them, or did you just think this is a pathway? Or I think I found them really diverse. I think that's the difficulty with any kind of label, isn't it? It makes it a thing in your head, and once yes. it's a thing, it's attached to expectations, and yet the same I would say with the young people we work with you call them this you call them that and then of course you meet them and they're just them <laughs> so it was a bit the same as that really that they they weren't Richard Branson or they weren't you know <laughs> this that or the other yeah. or whatever else you build in your head they were just people like me with a kind of bit of an idea and a bit of passion and a bit of drive and that was pretty much what we had in common and so the 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 idea was there you found a context where you could explore it what what led you to deciding to do it in this way? Was it um, in this way, I think it's no coincidence that I started at the School for Social Entrepreneurs in October 2013, and we registered as a CIC in October 2013. So, you know, I'm not a massive procrastinator, and as soon as I became aware that there were various legal entities that we could be, and this one looked quite straightforward and quite common, and probably the most recognised, I just thought, well, I'll get on with it. Anything that you do can be undone, so mm. how bad can it be? Let's let's get on with it. I'm a get her honour, really. So so there we were, it, just getting on with it. But, you know, being honest, still with very little idea of what a social enterprise was. Yeah. Um, I knew fundamentally what the core of our business would be and what it was I wanted to deliver, um, and we still deliver that to this day. Um. So in, in, in terms of that, do you mean the, the types of services you provide or the overall sort of crystallised mission? Absolutely or? both. Absolutely both. So there were, there have been too many ideas, and that's a whole other podcast, spreading oneself too thinly, um, but there were three tenets that we wanted to deliver to achieve our mission of preventing youth homelessness, and they were around tenancy and independent living skills, they were around mentors for young people and around employment for young people. And that was in the business plan on day one, and that is still in the business plan today. See, that's the, quite unusual. The, the for, journey has changed, but, yeah. the, but the mission has remained the same. <laughs> so many entrepreneurs who start on the SSE programmes mm. start with one idea and end mm. with something different, but in the same part, ballpark. Um, and the business model itself, could you talk a little bit more about that? So how, how does that work? How do you... Do you have set certain clients that you consistently work with? Do you apply for funding? Do you? Mm. Um, so that's the bit that has you... absolutely evolved. Yeah. And I would never have considered myself a businesswoman, and I probably still don't. But I've really enjoyed the learning around this bit. I had a really naive expectation that we would sell our courses so successfully within five minutes and be seventy-five <laughs> percent of our turnover would be traded income. Um, now, our traded income, whilst it's gone up 100% each year, as a proportion has gone down because we are also part-funded. Um, and if you do funding well and you deliver on your outcomes and you get credibility, it becomes easy to bring in funding, even in this climate. Um, and so that's the bit where we perhaps have moved away from the objective to be trading dependent. We've got too much funding, in my view which is a risk to sustainability. So we are focusing on our customers for our traded offers. And as we've evolved, all of those three core elements I described are now being launched as fully traded offers so that we can absolutely continue on that trajectory of being dependent on traded income. But funded income has been incredibly valuable along the way and I think has a place within social enterprise going forward. 
Yes. But we want diverse streams of income, and that's what we've always had. I would agree with that. And uh, the, 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 the tension for social entrepreneurs running social businesses is, is how much do you manage to get the traded income balanced with the funded income? How much do you try and stick to some principle around that? And how much of the reality of hand-to-mouth existence mm. kicks in? And cash flow. And, and cash flow is king. Yeah. So where are you with And that's a real toughie. Yeah, because uh, you know, one, of, one of the obvious bonuses of funding is that they often pay in lump sums. And who doesn't like a lump sum in their bank account when they've yeah. got you know, 13 grand a month payroll bill? So um, yeah, that's really significant. Um, but I would like to get to a point where funding is used for innovation, is used for fun, new, exciting ideas that we can test and bring to market, mm. ultimately, as traded offers. Um, and I will always leave the door open to that. But, and I think this is about my personality type as well as my experience as both poacher and gamekeeper, mm. I don't like funding. Funding yeah. feels philanthropic. Funding feels distanced from the communities you're trying to serve. It feels like square pegs in round holes because the trustees or whoever's behind the funding pot, it's about their outcomes, not about yours. And yeah. you, you chase the money to achieve their outcomes. No, my mission is to prevent youth homelessness. And I'm not going to suddenly say, well, actually, what we really do is mental health in order to bring in the cash. I think that's mission creep. I think it's unfair on staff. I think it's unfair on young people. So, you know, thanks everybody that's given us funding. But I think... For me, it's had its day, and it doesn't excite me. Interesting, passionate stance. Rebecca would expect nothing less from um, from you. What about commissions and commissioned work from local authorities? Are your services the types of services you, you would like to say, well, actually, I'm not going to compromise on my mission to fit your brief, but if you commission this, it will have a more strategic impact on youth homelessness? Absolutely, absolutely. And... I would want to build sufficiently robust, trusting relationships with public sector commissioners to be able to have an ongoing dialogue that says that we inform each other as equals as to what their outcomes are. It's, it's not a relationship that should be them at the top and us kind of with the begging bowl saying we'll fit into what you want because that's, that's like a funding relationship. Actually, it should be a relationship of equals. We bring a huge amount of expertise to the party to say, well, this is what young people are telling us they benefit from. Now, we accept you've got your strategic priorities or your regulator and your budget priorities and all the rest of it, but actually let's have a dialogue mm. because there's probably a middle ground where we can give you what you need um, and we can help you define what outcomes you actually want. And then you can commission us and guess what? Actually get the outcomes you want yeah. rather than just you know, us uh, all fudge it a bit. And that that dialogue is, well, there's, there's two things that come out for me. One is that you are living by your principles. Mm -hmm. So the same shift of power balance you've described in terms of funder mm -hmm. and funded mm -hmm. is the same as young people um, empowering them to actually stand up for themselves and be able to, yeah. you know, dialogue in an adult world. Mm -hmm. um, so it's uh, the what you're describing in terms of equal equal conversations and places at the table when you're talking to funders, commissioners, etc., and social enterprises is I would view as an emerging practice that needs to happen. So there are examples of that type of dialogue leading to some really exciting work. Mm -hmm. I think there's been some good stuff down in Tower Hamp. Hamlets with the mm -hmm. Early Years Foundation, yeah. um, and the, the the power balance is quite equal because mm -hmm. they're seeing the social enterprise as experts in their sector. So yeah. actually, it makes a lot of sense to sit around the table saying, "What can we do?" Yeah. The practice hasn't reached a level where it is across UK, mm -hmm. across all the tiers of no. local authorities that it should be, because the you know that type of thing takes time to embed although I'm not sure we've got very much time to embed that type of practice to make a positive impact because mm. local authorities budgets are being cut all over the place mm. at least that's what the messages are coming out 
and the number of social enterprises is mushrooming yeah. as it becomes a more mainstream practice. Yeah. So it, it is interesting that um, you know you are an innovative social enterprise, and that is one of the innovations that you're pushing forward based on your uh, sort of core beliefs. And, and I recognise that local authorities, you know, are a finite resource as well, and therefore will struggle to go and engage with all of the market all of the time as we would wish. But I'd also like that to be tested and measured sufficiently because isn't it worth it if in the end the outcomes are better? Because yeah. that's what it's about. This isn't a posture for the sake of a posture. This is because I think this is going to result in better outcomes for the human beings we exist to serve. Yeah. And you're showing that. You're yeah. dem clearly demonstrating that in a very professional way, um, which, again, counteracts uh, you know, some of the stereotypes of social enterprise, which is probably 20 years old now. Mm. Of, of being slightly more like charities and yeah. looking for handouts, whereas yeah. actually the positive impacts you show are yeah. proving it. Can I uh, briefly ask you your views on social investment? In this podcast, um, we've heard from Nick Temple mm -hmm. uh, from Social Investment Business talking about some of the social entrepreneurs who've taken uh, sort of small, small loans and grants to help start up and thrive. Do you have a perspective? It's a, it's a huge increasing market. Some say it's beginning to push out grant funding. I, I do, I'm, I'm a bit on the fence, I'll be honest. I like to kind of be in possession of all the facts and enough knowledge before I get off the fence. Um, and it's something that we've skirted around the edge of and that I've had conversations with various lenders and, and investors and, and all the rest of it. Um, so on a sort of individual level when you're looking as a tiny social enterprise you're pretty risk averse well I am um, and I suspect my board would be and they would be led by me on that um, I don't think our impact yet I think it's there but I've got to prove it's there so the evidence of our impact is for me not yet strong enough to make a business case to borrow against our outcomes um, so I actually wouldn't want anyone to lend to us yet one of the concerns I have is they want to lend big sums of money. Historically, yes. there's not been many around that are small pots, which if you want to lend to small enterprises, well, I'm not going to borrow half a million, sorry. I'd like to test the water with 50k, um, and there's not a lot of that around. Or even less in, or, or, in many or places. Or less, 10k, yeah. 20k, if we're going to test it. Um, and I, if I'm really honest, again, and this is my personality type, I feel quite intimidated and bullied by the sector by what comes out and by the fancy do's that you're meant to go to to learn about it, one kind of ends up feeling slightly inadequate for not being at the party and that really makes me want to run quite quickly in the other direction because I feel quite a lot of pressure that we're all meant to be jumping on the bandwagon and no matter what the question is, the answer is probably mm. social investment and I'm very apprehensive about new shiny ideas when I don't see sufficient evidence that social enterprises of our size and type are benefiting from it. So I will remain on the fence for now. Yes, it, it is not a very clear um, landscape at all yet, but it's emerging, it's shifting. We, you and I have talked briefly before about um, the difference between social enterprises providing services mm. and selling product. Mm. So somebody setting up a social enterprise selling eco-coffee beans mm. The business model is based on a product sales mm. basis where it is a very different proposition to be able to predict your income levels when it's a service uh, level from the off uh, yeah. to an extent where you could you could take that. I think that's absolutely right and it's so great to hear you say that because I get on my services versus goods um, social enterprise hobby horse a lot of the time. So I think there are two elements for me. One is that the profit margins when you're selling complex services are much more variable um, because the replication of the service is complicated. And the second element of that is that as a startup, being really honest, it takes you a long time to get to grips with what your overheads actually are. And what might cost you X to deliver one year costs Y the following year because the situation, the model has changed. So for me, the variables are so complex that that massively affects the bottom line, massively affects the profit margins, which would massively affect my decision to enter into social investment. Yes, yeah. 
Thank you, Rebecca. Um, I've just got a few final thoughts um, and questions to ask you before we finish. Um, what What are the key challenges coming up for you? What What for your mission? What's um, What's happening at the moment that you're you're fronting up to? I think it's that point of going. For me, startup ends with our fifth birthday, so we now are whatever we are. Um, we're no longer a startup. Damn it. Um, so we're a scale up or we're whatever and I think there was a lot of pressure to scale because a lot of innovation funding and support is about scale mm. and maybe it's not all about growth maybe actually it's about doing what you do really well there are more ways to have impact than just get more bums on seats so I think it's about making the business model stack up without necessarily lots of growth mm. but where there's any growth it's about replicating values um, so do you see yourself staying focused on Norwich area? No, we don't. We, we're focusing on the east. We're definitely looking across Norfolk and Suffolk. And the beauty of being a social enterprise is if we get offered something really juicy in Manchester or Cornwall, then if it stacks up, we'll do it, mm. you know, if it's the right thing to do. Um, but having gone through a phase of thinking, oh, we could franchise our core offer and we could do this and we could do that. Do you know what? I'm really enjoying reining things back in a little bit and focusing on yep. doing what we do really, really well. Um, something Peter Holbrook said when I was at the School for Social Entrepreneurs that really resonated was test it to destruction. Test it till it's so good it can't break in any scenario. Mm. Then you know it's good enough to replicate. Yes. So all of that's all well and good, but we've got to bring in the cash. Mm. And we have 11 core customers, and most of those are the public sector, and they don't have a lot. So for me, actually, a lot of the focus is on marketing our key messages to unlock that cash so yeah. that we are sustainable, not through funding. And Peter Holbrook, just for reference, is Chief Executive of Social Enterprise UK, but um, you, you met him at uh, SSE. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for that. What about more broadly in terms of the sector, if it is a sector, the social enterprise sector? Are there any things at the moment that are happening that you think are going to impact the sector, positively or negatively? Well, I think I think the, uh, the clues in your question of calling it a sector, I think it's still horribly misunderstood. Mm. Um, like I said, the first thing I thought of was the co-op, um, which is sort of 20-odd years out of date. Nothing against the co-op. Um, we're not co-ops. So I think there's something about understanding the sector, about other sectors understanding us and understanding how they can do business with us, um, you know, we're like any other business, we would think about Brexit. One of the key concerns is, is about the skills gap, is about recruitment. Mm. Just like any other mainstream business, we struggle with recruitment. Yeah. Like any other business owner, I have really high standards about who we employ. And over here in the east of England, I don't want to see that pool of talent be diminished in any way. So, you know, that's at a really, really big macro level. Um, including funding that comes out of Westminster down to our customers, whether that's prisons, schools or local authorities. Of course, we've got to keep an eye on that. And that's where being innovative with our revenue model and going, do you know what? Schools are never going to be able to afford what we do. How can we leverage income from elsewhere? So for every problem, there is an exciting, innovative solution. Yes, excellent. Um, and you wouldn't have been here for five years if you didn't manage that. Uh, is there a social entrepreneur that's just inspired you over the years? Anyone that you can think of? There are loads. I think there are too many to mention. And it's it's not like I'm going to mention anyone that anyone's heard of, really, because they're not necessarily big household names, but they're mm. people with drive and passion and who are just getting on and getting the job done and who have often inspired me for very different, specific reasons. So they may not even be people I particularly like, they may be people where I've spotted their flaws as well as, you know, what's great about them. Mm. And I've, I've tried to be a conglomeration of lots of the bits that I think are great about them. I've met, you know, I've met Karen from Bielu, you know, the, the, the water company that, that sends their, their profits overseas um, to support water projects. And there they are selling a good, you know, selling, mm. selling water, essentially. And I just see these people that come up with simple ideas. And I think... That's one of the things I've learned to respect and admire more than anything, is what we do is fantastically complex. And actually the people that can make it simple and can unpick it and explain it simply and get on and do it and lead other people in doing it are really the biggest inspiration of all. 
Brilliant, thank you. And is there anybody, anyone you've come across who's just starting out or has got some interesting social innovation ideas that you want to give a shout out to? Again, there are loads. I love Solutions for the Planet because of their revenue model. They work in schools, they leverage business. I think that's genius. Um, I love Good Gym. I, you know, I yeah. really love watching Good them grow. Awesome, and they're yeah. now in Norwich. What a brilliant idea. And, and it, for me, it's that idea around the corporate challenge and getting into supply chains actually it's the same mm. idea which is if you're spending the cash anyway yeah. why not spend it for a good cause um and i think when when purse strings are tight when money's tight that's a really powerful argument if you're spending money on the gym anyway why not spend it on good gym if yeah. you're spending money on coffee anyway why not buy it from a social enterprise yes. that sells coffee and in our case, if you're spending money on staff training, why not spend it on us and we'll train your staff to be mentors? And that's, that's a, really, a win-win. really exciting part of the sector because it's moving, I keep calling it a sector, mm -hmm. and as we discussed, it's a problematic phrase, but the idea of doing what you've just described, um, the win-win for everybody, makes it much more mainstream, much more appealing to broader sectors of society. I think and so. Ha and has that impact, and a good gym is a really, really good mm -hmm. example. Uh, thank you to you, Digby, because you've uh, been here yeah, from yeah. the beginning. Um, no, you don't have to add that. That was oh, okay. what I've added that. I've added that. It's out there now. You can't edit it. Um, no, just that, you know, people always say when they meet me, you know, aren't you lucky? Don't you look well? And I, there's a bit of you that wants to say, do you have you any idea how many hours I work? <laughs> and not much of this is about luck. Um, you know, yeah. I, you haven't worked hard at all. No, I, 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 I sit on a beach most of the time. So you know, I mean, yes, luck is luck is what I'm born with, and luck is tenacity and perhaps those other things. Mm. But actually, I wouldn't be still doing it and working the hours I'm doing if it wasn't unbelievably enjoyable. If that tide were to turn and it was forty nine percent enjoyable and fifty one percent unenjoyable, then something would give. But it's nothing like that. And for all the challenges and the downers and the frustrations. It's the most amazing sector to be in, but mostly that sector is about young people and yeah. doing something that I know we have an impact in. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, where can we find you on social media? Everywhere. There are a mere eight social for? media channels. Um, so we're on Instagram with an underscore after your own place. Uh, we're on Facebook with a CIC at the end of your own place. We're on Twitter, just your own place. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as Rebecca White, but also your own place. So there is no shortage of places to interact with us. And we interact back. It's a conversation. So we love that. Marvellous. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me on Podcast for Social Entrepreneurs. The first episode in the can. And we'll be making preparations to interview our next social entrepreneur and expert for episode number two. I would really value your feedback and any suggestions you have for social entrepreneurs that you would like me to interview. You can contact me via direct message at podcastsforsockent on Twitter, which is at capital P podcasts, number four, S-O-C-E-N-T. This episode will be released via the Anchor platform. Please share the link with your friends. and I look forward to your company in our next episode.